We're on a series called One Spirit, One Family, All Generations, and uh, this is rather than a series, it's actually like a campaign. Last week, Pastor Pete uh, gave you a card or suggested uh, things to do and, and ways to connect with people from another generation and maybe some subjects that you should talk about when you do get together, just to, just to enhance what we're trying to emphasize. And what we're emphasizing in this particular series is the need for the church to reflect all generations in our, in our body life and in our mission. In other words, we need to link together. And we start off this series talking about linking together. And uh, because every generation has something to contribute to the mission God has given to the church. And so if we're going to link together, then what we're going to talk about today is how we need to absolutely honor one another. And I, my text is Romans 12, verse 10, and I chose two or three, actually three different translations to try to drive home the spirit of what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to us in this thing called honoring one another. First, the English Standard Version, it says this, love one another with brotherly affection. I love this outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. Everyone say outdo. outdo. Okay, now that, we're going to talk about that at the end of the sermon, what outdo looks like. But, I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to outdo the generation before me and how they're trying to maybe honor me. I'm to outdo uh, maybe what I'm expecting out of maybe Gen Xers, Millennials, or Gen Zers and how they are supposed to honor me. I'm going to outdo honoring them. And so outdo, we're going to talk about what that means, outdo. Let each other, this is the New Living Translation, let, love, love each other with genuine affection. Come on, brotherly affection, genuine affection. In other words, we're sincere about this thing. Take delight in honoring each other. I'm going to say take delight in. That means you're happy to do this. You're pumped up to do this. This is exciting for you to do this. This is something that's not a chore. We got to go to grandma's house, okay? But this is something you delight in in doing. The third scripture comes out of the New International Revised Version. There's a lot of versions in the Bible. A lot of versions have been translated into English from the Greek and from the Hebrew. And it says, love each other deeply. Come on, deeply, not just, not just shallowly. Not just, you know, casually, but deeply. Honor others more than yourselves. Everyone say, more than myself. That means I'm to esteem all the generations I am sandwiched in with. Of course, I'm, I'm kind of slowly not getting sandwiched. I'm slowly going off the scene. But <laughs> I'm to honor them more than I honor myself or my own generation. Now, Using, applying this to the, the generation theme of, of what we're talking about, every generation, the church needs to outdo the other generation and actually show an honor. I mean, every generation has to take delight in every other generation in the church. Every generation has to esteem the other generations more than it esteems itself. So if, if, to do this, we need to kind of break this down. What is a generation? What are we talking about? Now, this is, uh, we can say, well, take a biblical thing, a generation's 40 years. Well, we really can't do that because of the rapid changes of our culture. Now, sociologists have, have broken it down almost like 20-year segments, but now they've gone even deeper that like a generation of 20 years can have splits in the way that they actually react to each other within their own generation. They're kind of like, I'm tired of being a millennial. I don't like, I don't like what millennials are, but I'm a millennial. And so we have all these things going on. But what, what it really, in looking at this and how we're going to apply this in the church is really we're going we're to take sociology here, and they would look at people groups in about 20-year periods. It's not an exact science. It could be 15 years. It could be 25 years. And uh, <clears throat> because of the rapid developments of our culture, it's all people. What is a generation? A generation is all people born and living at the same time. And because all people are born and living at the same time, it's a group of people who see life and the Bible the same way. For instance, it's because they have shared experiences. I want to talk to my generation, supposed to be boomers. I'm, a, I'm, I'm classified as a boomer. I'm a post-World War II baby. My father was a World War II veteran. Okay, I went through that. How many born from 1945, let's just say to 1965, let's just use that term. How many of you remember when John Glenn orbited around the earth three times? Ooh, there we are. We shared that experience in first grade. I mean, we stopped the class. We listened to the, the radio. 
And we saw, you know, the old black and white TVs. Remember we just had black and white TVs? And we lived life in color, but we watched everything in black and white. And uh, I remember the whole John Glenn thing. How many of you remember Boomers when, um, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? You remember that day? Not everybody can remember that day or what happened on that day. And I was in the, my fourth grade classroom, and my, our teacher made us stand at the window as they lowered the flag to half-mast, and tears are coming down her face. I, I remember that day. Was, those are shared experiences. How many boomers remember when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan show about 1963? I remember watching that, and I just thought, like, aliens had arrived, you know, from... <laughs> My, my, wasn't the band up there. It was all the girls screaming. I didn't understand it. Why are those girls all screaming? And they're like passing out and going into hysteria. My, my seven-year-old mind just couldn't wrap around what was taking place. We have those shared experiences, don't we? Now, let's go on. How about my junior hires and uh, maybe ninth graders and sophomores? They would call you like Gen Z. Maybe probably all of high school would be. How many of you, uh, if you're basically 17, 11, let's say 12 to 17, I'm going to put my, how many of you have your own cell phone? Raise your hand. All right. Okay. You have your own cell phone. Yeah. We didn't have cell phones when we were your age. How many of you do Instagram? All right. How many of you do FaceTime? Snapchat? All right. Okay. Now, there's something significant about that because most kids in their generation, uh, they only know how to talk on a phone when they're looking at somebody. It's a, visual, it's a visual generation. How many of my generation remember the Jetsons? Well, the Jetsons have arrived. The Jetsons have arrived. And so it's a very visual generation and how they, how they communicate and they, they experience visually their daily life together. There's a challenge. That affects a lot of ways they look at this. Now let's talk about now this thing called the challenge because there's a challenge. Why we're on this series? Because there's a serious challenge that we are, we are facing. And this is this. The, the, the challenge is this. Generations tend to judge one another and the way they see life and the Bible differently. It's not that they do not believe in the Bible. They believe in the Bible. And they believe the Bible is true, but how they may go about interpreting it, how they may go by, by and focusing on certain truths of the Bible, and how they may go by applying it in their life may be a little bit different. We see this in just ministry gift mixes. Ben's a very strong evangelist. I mean, he is. He's a pastor evangelist. It's one of the things Ben's very strong at. Ben may, I'm not saying that he does, but because of that, he may see everything evangelistically in the Bible. When he's seeing the ministry of Jesus, he's seeing everything evangelistically. You know, we have Bill Shiler here as a teacher. I mean, Bill as a teacher will see teaching, the need to establish truth and foundations. I have an apostolic ministry. I mean, there's just certain things that got to be in place. I mean, I walk into a church, I do it all the time, and is this in place, is this in place, and this in place, is this in place? I'm like a broken record because I, I kind of inspect foundations. I'm like the guy that says, you can finally frame the house. The foundation is ready. And why are you going so fast? You need to back up and build that foundation. We all kind of do that. But also, culturally, we might approach this a little bit differently. I, I came to realization of this here in September. I was flown up to Canada to encourage Ministers Fellowship International, started a Canada affiliate. So all the Canadians that used to come down to our conference had their own conference. Well, I was picked up at the airport by a young leader in a church. He's a youth pastor. He's the head of Canada's Alpha program. And a young leader, probably about 30, 32 years old. And we sat and talked. And we talked a lot about cultural things. And as a Canadian, he was a, a pacifist. And his view of American Christians, we just love to shoot people. <laughs> and it was interesting in this conversation how someone who believed in the same Bible I did, who believed in being born again and water baptized and baptized in the Holy Spirit, who, who believed in a God who was saving people around the world, saw me and my other Warhawk buddies, saw that we just have this kind of lust to see people get murdered and shot up. But it showed me that two Christians can come with a different perspective on certain things. It was an interesting conversation. We don't like that. We're not comfortable with diversity sometimes. 
It kind of shakes you up. We do international ministry a lot. You're going to face that all the time. About 1970, for instance, for millennials, those who are born, it matters what they say about 1976 to 94, somewhere in that particular category, were born during that time to make moral judgments on other people. Just they, they believe in, in compassion and mercy and inclusiveness and, and, uh, and uh, they're anti, they're very much into social issues. They're anti-human slavery and, and, and a real cry for ending poverty and, and racism and, and other things like racism take up top moral issues with them. Those are very important moral issues that they, they possess. Now, you take the boomer builder generation that, that I'm from and a lot of us here in this church represent we, we see that there is right, and, and we see that there is wrong. And if we don't judge things, those things will result in evil consequences. And so we have to judge. If we don't judge, this is going to take place if we don't judge. So we see America as a land of opportunity, and, and, and we believe that the poor can climb out of their circumstances because the right principles, the right work ethic, the right character, they'll get them out. And then and, and human sex slave trafficking is evil. Racism is evil. But let's, let's just not forget that we're also aborting babies, that that is also injustice. And so you have these, in my world, who pastors everything from a day old to 100 years of age. I deal with both of these camps, and I deal with their cries and their hearts and their concerns, and, and I see at times polarizations where we're not listening to each other. And this is why we need to link, and this is why we need to honor. Now, where are we as a culture as it related to intergenerational linking? Now, I'm going to give you some sociological terms, not that it's an exact science. You may overlap. It might not be true to you. Maybe you're raised by your grandparents, and you think like someone born in 1940. Okay, you just think that way, because that was the way you were raised, and, and nothing, is, you just cross the board, stereotype something. But there are sociological tendencies, the way groups see and perceive life. You might even be part of one kind of part of another. You might overlap. But here's some general tendencies. Here they are. First we have is uh, we have what's called traditionalists. Traditionalists, anybody really born before 1945? Anybody here born between, before 1945? All right. We have a few traditionalists here. All right. Let me tell you a little bit about these guys who are traditionalists. They have a strong we linked arm. In other words, they are the we generation. We linked arms and got us out of the Depression. We linked arms and defended the, defeated the Third Reich. We linked arms and got America's economy going. And we gave a, a nation to our kids. We did it. And so there's a great trust in institutions. Institutions may be flawed. They may have all sorts of wrinkles. They may have come shortcomings. But... But these institutions accomplish great good if we work it and we work in the context of it, they'll work. They're, they're, they're the type of people that I was a Baptist, I was born a Baptist, and I'll die a Baptist. There's a loyalty to the, to the signage, there's a loyalty to the cause. And so traditionalists have a, they're the most giving generation, the most generous generation of all the generations of part of giving. Now the problem, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're getting ready to go to heaven. And so is your money. <laughs> Things going to change financially for the church. Then you have the next group are the boomers. And those are born basically after 1945, sometimes in the mid-1960s. Now, what happened with boomers, I'm going to relate this more to the church. They wanted Christianity to become boomer. That's the psychological generation. This is, a center, this is, a, this is the, the generation that got into self-esteem. It's a generation that got into discovering yourself and your, you know, am I codependent or am I OCD or am I multi-personality or am I schizophrenic? Well, I'm all of them. <laughs> I'm not here to be unkind to people's mental conditions, but the issue is we went inside to find truth. And so Christianity became a personal thing with us. This is a generation, yes, the Jesus people movement came. Yeah. And I just didn't want to just serve a God who's just a God of you know, transcendence up there. He's God that covers, fills heaven and earth. 
I don't want to just get into creeds. I want to know Jesus is my personal Savior, my personal friend that I walked with. And there's some great things because they personalized Christianity. They personalized their relationship with God. But in personalizing that, they also came very consumed with me. Now, they were also the generation that was told that they had great potential. The traditionalists that gave us freedom, that saved the Western civilization, that took us out of the Depression, said, you know what? You guys are going to accomplish great things. We built a foundation for you. So we became, became great entrepreneurs. We became great business people. We became great achievers. And it was all about me. And so Christianity came about me. So when this church no longer fits me, I leave. We became the generation of church hoppers. We became the consumers. Where everything's got to fit me. And so in that, in fact, we became very competitive with one another. And as I work with the body of Christ, I, I find the most competitive pastors that I know that are kind of outdoing each other, all about 55 and older. I actually find a different spirit with younger pastors. I find it's refreshing. They find out that they're not comparing themselves as much, and their identity's not wrapped around outdoing the other guy. There's more of a collective support, and as long as Jesus is being glorified and it's authentic, and let's just move that thing forward. Where I find some of my other guys my age can be somewhat competitive. I think it's reflective culturally of how the culture has affected the church. Then the third is what we call Generation Xers. Actually, a very small generation. It's a small generation for a number of reasons I don't want to get into, but they, they're the ones who were the product of, the experience, of experimenting with the American family. They're the ones that grew up without a dad. They're the ones who really didn't want to have kids. group of people that became the divorced children. And a lot of them didn't want to have kids till way later on. They didn't want to have careers and raising kids at the same time because they were the latchkey kids themselves. And so they, they became, they married a little bit later. They became very distrusting of people. They stayed in small groups. They redefined their family as maybe my uncle, my best friend, and my neighbor across the street. That's my tribe. And all of a sudden, family got really, really lost. What you would know as traditional family of mother and father and sisters and siblings and cousins, that was getting lost with them because it got blown to pieces. They're also the first product of modern and postmodern thinking in the university system. So they were raised with the scientific method that two plus two equals four, but they were also raised that in some cultures, two plus two equals five. And so if two plus two equals five for them, I guess two plus two equals five. And over here, it's two plus two equals seven, and if they think two plus two equals seven, then two plus two must equal Seven. And so, well, what's right? All of it. That's what we call postmodern thinking. And they were the first product of that. The rest of the generations coming after still are influenced and impacted by that. But that's what took place. They also wanted to, they, they also were more survivors than idealists because life was survival for them relationally. And so they just want to make sure Christianity works. They're not necessarily caught up in accuracy. They want pragmatism. And they also are big into volunteerism. Life outside of the church and doing things in the community is just as sacred as doing things in the church. Gen, 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 Gen Xers. And then, of course, the millennials who are always getting shot up anywhere born from 1976 to about 1980 to, to you know, 1996. They say if you can remember 9-11, if that was your shared experience and before, then you're, you're, you're a millennial versus the new, newest generation was Gen Z. Millennials are really highly criticized in our culture. But we need to understand something about millennials. They had to grow up with a thing called terrorism. And they had to grow up with a thing called school shootings. They had to go experience mall shootings. And someone could be sitting, sipping on coffee in a, in a Starbucks, like took place up in Federal Way, five police officers. Someone came in and just shot them, just shot them all. They lived in a, a culture like that. I'll never forget a guy that was big in youth ministry when I was a youth pastor. And he, his name was Michael, Mike Higgs. And uh, Mike said to me, you know, we've made so many, this is back in 1992, he said this to me, we've made so many developments in youth ministries over the last 10 years. But, but 10 years ago, kids 
were not shooting each other. They were not killing themselves. They were not shooting up campuses. The, the Gen X, I mean, the, the millennials grew up with these types of realities. And there's a, they, they have a strong feeling, according to sociologists, that life is unpredictable. So I need to make my life meaningful, and I need to make my life count. They trust people little. They assume that man is absolutely flawed. And that's why a lot of young people have been very, very attracted to Calvinistic teachings because Calvinism teaches the total depravity of man and they can identify with that. They, uh, their morals are to be yourself, feel good about your choices, do what works, and don't judge. They're huge into social causes, huge into social causes. And they don't think the church is that important because they don't trust a church that is flawed. Versus my, I'm probably more of a traditionalist than even a boomer, it's flawed. Who cares? It works. Let's make it better and let's work it through. A millennial wouldn't think the same as I do on this. So it's a great challenge for the church today. And then, of course, you have all those who can't remember 9-11, and that's Generation Z. Generation Z. Well, what are these guys like? Well, they're tech wizards. They grew up with a smartphone in the crib. They went to restaurants and Parents put games and video cartoons, and well, they were eating pancakes just to keep them quiet. They were, they were watching their phone. My, my four and five-year-olds can maneuver through a smartphone. I mean, they just, I mean, it's just amazing just how instinctively they can. They're, they're going to be tech wizards. And because of that, there's going to be a tremendous, tremendous degree of creativity. They were born with a lot of different social issues that, that other generations were, didn't get born into. And so they haven't been exposed to a lot of things. The, all social issues the last 10 years have been part of their education. And they've also been around instant millionaires at the age of 20 and billionaires at the age of 20. So for them, it's possible to go from high school where I can barely afford a burger at Burgerville to becoming a billionaire if I just invent the right thing because they've seen it happen. Interesting. So what do you got out of there? You got people who really give a great contribution to us of how we get into the future because it's in them. It's in them. All right. Now, now how, the question is, how does the church, how does the church move through this cultural generational quagmire? Quagmire is a nice word for it, a little vocabulary word. It actually means like being bogged down like in the mud. And we're kind of bogged down as a church. It's you know, it's my, my particular burden is that if we don't meet these challenges as a church, we're going to be torn apart, and we're going to lose our voice, and we're going to lose our effectiveness. But none of us can have it our way if we're going to make it. None of us can have it our way. And so how does the church move through this quagmire? Well, the first thing we need to do is we really do need to raise our cultural IQ. In other words, how do different groups think and why? You know, and as we've said, that in the church, the boomers usually and the traditionalists do trust institutions more willingly, and uh, they are able to give financially without any strings attached to the general fund. Tremendous tithers, tremendous givers. Where we see like Gen Xers and millennials, they choose to give to specific things, not to general things. So it's going to change the whole, and they don't want me to cut and paste and try to justify tithing if they don't see it very, very clearly. And so what does that mean for those who are going to succeed me here at this church? Well, one of the things is that they're going to have to be more creative in how to raise financial. They may have less supply the mission of the church than I did. And it may mean for a season they may have less money and even more people than I had to accomplish the same things that we're doing. Now, am I justifying this? No, I'm actually a great believer in tither. But you got to work with what you got to work with. And how, how do I get people to connect a tithe to that board and to the turkeys we gave out and the families we touched and people getting saved? They're going to have to masterfully do that. How do we raise our cultural IQ? We need to die to our old loyalties. Millennials are, are getting a lot of information right now uh, given to them that's extremely debatable and short-sighted. Let me just let me just give you let me just give you one. They may think the government can provide everything, and the rich need to pay more taxes. And so they think that. And, and I've had many many conversations with people in this church. 
Well, let's look at this. Let's just deal with the argument by facts here. 2014, the lower 50% of taxpayers, from the middle down, the 50%, guess how much percentage they made up of the income tax base to the government in 2014? 2.75%. So 50% of taxpayers give less, add or contribute less than 3% of government revenue income. Less than 3%. The, uh, the top 1% paid 39.5% of all the income or the tax revenue income that uh, the government received in 2014 on top of corporate tax, which were the highest t corporation taxed nation in the world, and payroll taxes that they had to pay. And so somebody would argue, well, look, at they, they paid more corporate tax in 1952 than they did today. Yes, because what they did is they reshifted how they created their tax bases, and they went from traditional corporations to S-corporations where they now get all the money as income, and they pay it in income tax. So we're still getting a lot of money out of the rich. My point is we're getting a lot of money out of the rich. We're getting a lot of money. Now, do I believe in taxes? Yes. I think we need to look at our tax system and revamp that. And that's a great debate and a great discussion going on. But the idea is that all we got to do is just keep taxing more rich people may not be the answer. My uncle Alan was, uh, was a brainchild. He's a brainchild of the, of the, of the um, Investor Daily. It's a West Coast magazine uh, newspaper. It's kind of like the Wall Street journal, uh, journal. It was my uncle's idea. He was the brainchild. He worked for a man by the name of William O'Neill, who in the, in, the, in the stock bond business was a great you know, wizard and a great genius and well-known of those people who know that type of stuff. And he was a great contributor to conservative causes. And, you know, he wanted limited government, big plaques all over the place. Gave to Ronald Reagan and the Bushes and big plaques in his room. And he used to tell me all the time, he used to say it to me like this. He'd look at me and they'd say, they think my money is theirs. And then they could just take it. You know, that's kind of his, you know, his thinking and what went on. Lots of, that's, that's a framework. At the same time, traditionalists and boomers need to learn that there are ethical environmental issues. That when water gets polluted, it turns into cancer. We're up here praying for people and, and cancer in the front row, and we want policies that create it. We can't have it both ways. We're going to have to learn that. We're going to we're gonna have to come to grips that racism is still real in the United States. And I challenge everybody from another race to sit down with someone from another race not to tell them what you think they're going through, but to actually have a conversation with them what it is to be them. We need to, we need to start talking. We need to start listening. We need to start learning. Because it's been amazing to me how many white people I've talked to who just seems to know what an African-American needs. <laughs> have you ever talked to an African-American what they need? I'm not just making this up. This has been my journey. We got we to gotta stretch ourselves. All of us need to re-examine ourselves. All of us need to humble ourselves. All of us need to learn from one another. We need to recognize that there is truth. You know, science doesn't have all the answers. Have you noticed that? You know, non-life cannot create life. You, you know, you give me a an atom, you give me a, a molecule, it's not going to produce a bear. Non-life, rocks can't produce fish. Dirt can't produce a whale. It's just non-life cannot produce life. Something or someone has always existed. Francis Schaeffer called it the eternal impersonal or the eternal personal. He says, there's your two doors. You have no other options because something caused something. And so, and so no one believes, not even evolutionists, that there was nothing, nothing at one time and all of a sudden out of nothing popped molecules out. No one believed that. There's always been something. So it's either something or someone. We got to get back to basic arguments of philosophy. Man innately worships. Where does that come from? Worship something. Man has conscience. 
He has a sense of right and wrong. My dog doesn't. My dog doesn't have active contrition. So he never feels sorry for anything he does. <laughs> My dog's never repented to me once. <laughs> we got to see the Bible as a supernatural book. We got to see that it's a supernatural book that has recorded for us God's supernatural intervention in human history. It was written over 1,600 years. It was written by 40 different authors. It was written in three different continents, in different moods and places. Different people who wrote it were different statuses of culture and life, without any communication, without any coordination. And it comes together cohesively as a revelation of God's plan for man. What a book. What a book. There is truth. There is truth. And finally, God's revealed himself to us through his son. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 1.1. God, who in various ways and in various manners spoke to our fathers through the prophets, has now in these days spoken to us through his son. Amen. This is truth. We've we got to make sure that we do things based on truth. We've got to get back to being objective, not subjective. What do we mean by objective? By objective, we're talking about making decisions based on truth, based on principle, based on facts. What, what, what about subjective? We make decisions in being subjective on, on feelings. You know, see, we don't want to say things because we just feel they ruffle feathers. We don't, we don't want to say Islam has a, a root of evil in its basic philosophy. Now, Bob, do you believe that Muslims should be a part of the United States? I, I, they have the right to disagree with me. They have the right to exist. I protect their human rights. Yeah, I do that. But we're afraid to say things. We're afraid to say things when we're standing for truth. I want, ladies, I just want you to know, I saw, you know, back when all the riots were taking place, at the end of our last election, there was this lady on the streets. I saw it on, uh, you know, on one social media. She had a sign saying, we need to give Muslims the same. She's informed. Muslims give Christians in other nations. <laughs> She's informed. She's informed. But ladies, the, the whole human race has been thrown into evil because of you. And because of that, you're to be oppressed. Because of that, you're not to be treated with equal value. In some countries, they, per, they, they perform female circumcisions. In some countries, they, 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 they beat women like crazy. You wouldn't believe how the mutilations, the sex abuse, the, and the denial of education. We, we can't just embrace that as a wonderful thing. Let's all get together because we've got to call it the way it is. I say the same thing about extreme Christian doctrine. Remember in the 1970s, there was a couple that withheld insulin from their diabetic child in the name of faith. The child died. They were in a meeting where the prophet Dick Mills was, and he, he didn't know who they were. He called them out, and he says, you've made a terrible mistake, but God has forgiven you. You know, extreme Christian doctrine leads to horrible destructions. We've got to call it the way it is. You know, Paul didn't mind if people preached with bad motives, but he certainly minded if they preached an inaccurate gospel. He had all sorts of unkind names about them, mutilators of the flesh, snakes. Okay, he was not PC, okay? He, he called it the way it was. We also have to do this. We have to test every presupposition. I just went offline. Gary, I don't know why I did what I did, so you're going to follow me here, okay? I just got knocked off. So you got me? You're with me. Good. We need to test every presupposition. Every presupposition. What's a, what's a, what's a presupposition? Pre, presupposition is, is, is something assumed beforehand in a line of arguments. A position I take that hasn't been tested. We need to test these presuppositions with truth, and we need to, and we need to do it with, with the Bible. We need to test it with, with facts. For instance, there's a problem. In other words, how does this truth apply to all situations? There's a problem, for instance, in the transgender argument. I'm, I'm kind of getting out there today on different things, but transgender argument. Because first, there's 50 definitions right now of what each transgender you know, status is or, or type of transgender. Who's making these definitions? Well, people who create them within themselves. And so we're going against God and we're going against nature. Now, what this would be like, it would be like me going to 
we have Vice Principal Steve Stahl there, and I said, Steve, I, I, I'm going back to first grade, and I want you to enter me into a first grade class at Harney Elementary School. Well, Bob, you're 63 years old. No, I'm not. I say I'm seven. And because I say it, you have to honor it. And so you got to let me in. Well, no, that's a little bit ridiculous argument. It's the same argument. Whatever I say I am, then I become that. And so we got to test our presuppositions. It's not in any way being biased or unkind or insensitive or even compassionate towards people who are struggling with something that absolutely need compassion and understanding. But we've got to get back to testing our presuppositions. You know, the, the thing about the Bible does the Bible say everything that we can know about God? I mean, that's possible. Everything, everything about God? No, the Bible only shows us what God wanted us to know about him. We're going to spend eternity searching the unreachable searches of riches of Christ. Does the Bible say everything about creation? No, what it says is true, but it doesn't say everything about creation. What, what the Bible is, what God wanted us to know, and it was given to us by someone who saw everything. God saw everything. I've only seen this. God's observed everything. I've only observed this. I am not omniscient. I am not all present. I'm not all powerful. We sang the Revelation song today. God knows all those things. So I need to trust God and what he has revealed over my own opinions. There comes a limit where the study of many books brings weariness. And I don't end in any conclusion. God helped us out by revealing his word to us. We need to be loving and respectful without becoming tolerant. Now, what do I mean by that? Tolerance today is not about respecting another human being's opinion or their own dignity. But tolerance today is being forced to agree with the mob. If you don't agree with the mob, you're going to get attacked. That's why a lot of Christian pastors are afraid to talk about issues at a pulpit or on TV being interviewed, because the mob will come after you. I absolutely give someone the right to disagree with me. And I may disagree with their lifestyle, but I give them the right to live that lifestyle because they're a human being like me. I expect the same respect back. But we're not talking about everyone gets to land where they land. We're talking about one group gets to be vocal and the other group gets to be gagged. And we need to understand that. I need to be respectful, but without surrendering my conscience. Seven, we need to enter conversation with humility and honor. I don't know everything. When it comes to complete understanding of the Bible, so when it comes to honor, when it comes to honor, what does the Bible mean when it says we are to honor one another? Well, the answer is really to esteem the other generations more than we esteem Ourselves. In other words, they got to be as valuable and they got to be as precious as me. Do I, as a young man, consider, um, you know, do I consider old people to be valuable and precious to me? I've been to socials where there's been a lot of 20s and 30 year olds, and I try to enter in conversations, and I can just see that they're just completely disinterested in having a conversation with me. But we can go the other way too. Do we believe some? 20-year-old is a barista and trying to go through Clark College that they are precious and they're valuable. I want to let you know millennials are the strength of our church. I want you to know millennials have a great passion for correct theology. They want content. They want meat. What they want is they want all the cultural mixture out and just give us Jesus. I want you to know that they really want to get on mission and they want to do cause. And I want you to know they're the number one best inviters of people to any church. We better honor the millennials. We better say how precious they are. They're the marketing brand, the branch of our church and every other church around. But do I value them? So how can we do this? Well, first, enjoy the diversity of generational uniqueness. Boomers bring loyalty and productivity. Boomers and builders together. Gen Xers bring relationship and a cry for authenticity. One thing about Gen Xers, be real. Be authentic. Millennials bring cause and a cry for rich content theologically. That's why so many have run to camps like John Piper and, and other camps where, they, where they'll spend you know, hours listening to R.C. Sproul. Wait, why? Because they're wanting theology. They just don't want a couple of verses and a show. They want to go deep. 
let's give it to them. They don't want to sit around in a pew. They want to move forward. So let's enjoy diversity. We got, we got all sorts of great things. We got Generation Z is going to give us the future and creativity. They're going to challenge us in things that we got to adapt to and change to keep the gospel going. Second, take the initiative to engage someone from another generation. Outdo, outdo the other generation. Let me just say this. You want honor? Then start out doing the other generations and giving them honor. Now I'm going to sit till they honor me. No, no, you go honor them. When I was a youth pastor, if I had 100 kids, there was 100 kids saying, we're not going to be friendly to you until you prove yourself to me. And I had to build bridges. I won their hearts, but I had to, it, it started with me. We love him because he first what? There you go. There's the principle. You reap what you sow. Three, learn from and listen to. Learn from and listen to each generation. You got a lot to do. We got to learn and we got to listen to. Listening is the language of humility. I call it reverse mentoring. Show me, teach me. I want to know something. Let me, let me learn from you on this. Especially in my generation and those, those even older than me, man, we got to get coached on all sorts of technological stuff and who's who in culture and what's taking place and how people are thinking. Make sure that uh, all ages are reflected in ministry. Make sure that all ages are reflected in ministry. I, I will just say point blank that in CHC, I think we're lacking in one area is on our platform here in our worship team. I've talked to Casey about this. Now, the catch, though, is that we're, we're, we're not going back in style. So if you have an operatic voice, and you're going to get up there and you go, glory to God, that's not going to work. <laughs> it, it ain't going to happen. But we can, we can, you can adjust, you can, you can bend, you can work, and we're going to move, we're going to do a better job in making it fit. Going on, we want to make old school cool. What do you mean make old school cool? What do you mean by cool? Cool means that it's approved and admired and never goes out of style. That's what cool means. We're going to make old school cool. A lot of this, a lot of this is the way we package things. If, if culture is wanting authenticity, if the culture is wanting realism, if culture is wanting sarcasm and parody, and that's what they want, but they want rich theological content, then I'm going to give them rich theological content with parody, sarcasm, authenticity, and realism. <laughs> they got to know I'm real, they got to know I'm funny, and they got to know I'm studied up. It's got to fit their world. Watch some, you know, you may not like it, watch some modern comedians. You're just going to have to start laughing at yourself a little bit. That's what this culture is like. I came in from a Thanksgiving movie with my sister and my wife and uh, my son-in-law and everyone else in the family is watching a Brian Regan video. Brian Regan's a tremendous comedian because he just, he just laughs at all of us. He laughs at himself. He just, he, you got to be able to laugh at yourself. A lot of people can't do that. We got to make old school cool. If they want authenticity and conversation rather than formulas and soapboxes, then I'm going to have to enter into conversations and get off my soapbox, make my position, and leave it with them and let it soak. Amen. It's my manner. It's my style. It's the way that I'm going to do this. To do this, we're going to need to include the old and the new. We've got to get past the generation. We've we got to get the past generation, I should say, in the game. We've got to work harder at that. We've got to help them, though, get up to date on technology. We're going to have to help them know who's who in culture and what's in and what's out and, and graphics. And if they want, and what, what, the, what the millennials really want in children's ministry. Flannel boards are out. <laughs> I love flannel boards. I give it up. We do not demand, worship team, come on up here. We do not demand that the new become old. 
I remember when services went three hours. Enjoy your memory. Enjoy your memory. I remember we had big brass bands. Look it up on YouTube. We got to give up. Remember the hymns. We're going to have to give up 19th century hymns that had 19th century poetry styles. It would be like me up here singing in Spanish if I didn't speak Spanish or German or whatever other language. You got to relate it. Do I love the hymns? I love hymns. And some hymns have rich theological content. But you know, some, a lot of those old hymns do not. I ran convalescent ministry when I was first, uh, Sue and I first got married. We did, we did services in a rest home. That's how I cut my teeth as a preacher. You know, I remember, you know, getting out of the rocker, give me number 42, Lily of the Valley. You know, he's the Lily of the Valley, bright and morning star. I just, it, it doesn't fit the context of our culture. But that's was anointed to you. And we laugh at the Amish, but how many people look at us in covered wagons and plain ordinary clothes? Formal dress in church. I mean, Jesus wore a three-piece suit, Italian Armadi suit. He was known for the wealth of his day. Where'd that come from? Remember, I first understood I, could, I was anointed without a tie. I preached in Daytona Beach in August at this hotel to about 150 kids from Benny Hinn's church, by the way, my claim to fame, <laughs> with no air conditioning. I was in shorts, T-shirt, I mean, I'm running shorts, and they gave me a bath towel. You know how some of those old Pentecostal preachers had little, little handkerchiefs? I had a whole bath towel, and I used it about every two minutes. I was drenched. Kids were getting saved and filled with the Spirit and healed and great move of the Spirit. I didn't have a tie on. <laughs> you know what a tie was originally? It was a gentleman's napkin. It was what they used to wipe their face with. <laughs> you got to get, get rid of stuff like no hats, beanies, or tattoos in the church. <clears throat> Throw it out, gang. Throw it out. Well, I, I looked it up in Hezekiah 5. We're going to have to, we're going to have to give up. We're just going to preach the gospel and it'll take care of itself versus a more holistic approach. So we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to show mercy. We're going to get involved in our community. We are going to care about issues of poverty. I understand there's addictions and entitlements and all sorts. I understand those things. I do. But I also know this, if people need someone to get down in the ditch with them, and I'm going to help, I'm going to help you climb out of this thing. Touchy subject. We're going to have to, we're going to have to, this is tough. We're going to have to quit assisting the people bring a leather-covered Bible to church. <laughs> that the Bible may be in 30 versions on a smartphone. And the people that look it up on the smartphone are just as dedicated to Jesus as you are. I mean, I even have, oh, man, I'm gonna get them, I want them to bring Bibles. Why? They're bringing like 30 versions on their phone. Like, I love books. Well, God bless you. <laughs> I love my library. But I can put 40,000 books in a library on an iPad. I love books. Just, it's not the book. I love the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's the revelation of God. That's what I'm into. If it comes to me electronically, it comes to me auditorily, because some people only listen to Scripture. They can't read it that well, they, or where their eyes are at right now. They listen to it. And some is so cool, it's like dramatic. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We've got we to throw away our peppies. I had someone leave our church when I started using PowerPoint, like I had morally compromised you see, we, think, we laugh, but we've got so many little things that polarize us. And the biggest one, it's going to be a tough one, and I may even debate whether I even, even should say this, but I'm going to say it. 
but we gotta, we got to not insist that everyone vote the same way that I vote. I'm a, I'm a conservative, limited government Republican. But I understand why people don't vote the way I do. I understand. I understand their thinking. I try to really understand that. And I don't hold it against them. I'm trying to listen to them, the things that are important to them. If we're going to keep this church and all churches on track, we're going to have to all die and mix. Do I believe the church to be vocal? Absolutely. I just want us to be consistently vocal. I want us to be as ticked off that some company whose product I'm buying from, from Taiwan and are not paying their employees, and I'm as ticked off about that as I am something else in my nation. I know full Christians internationally that are dedicated to, to not buying products that are the product of slave labor. I got to be as ticked off about racism as I am about abortion. It's not either or. It's and both that I'm calling for. I got to be as concerned about poverty as I am about stupid taxation brackets that are not really unjust. But I got to think about both. You know, when, uh, was it Hurricane Harvey was the, the second one that hit Texas? I think Harvey, 70% of all the help that took place in Texas over that hurricane came from the church. The church is the answer. The church is the answer. That's a holistic approach. So I want us to do something. I want us to stand up, if we would. And I would like you to take the, if you it would, and, and not feel too uncomfortable with this. I'm just going to tell you right now, everybody didn't wash their hands today coming in, but it's okay. I want you to take the hand of the person next to you right now. Cross the aisles right now. I want us to link. I want us to link. Link up and then stretch out. Stretch out. There we go. I want us to link. Come on. We're going to be one church, one family, one spirit, all generations, all races, all classes. We're going to work through these issues. We're going to listen to each other. We're going to be clothed with humility because the church is the answer. The gospel is the answer. And us living it out together is the answer. So I want you to pray for the one on your left and your right right now. Just you pray quietly, pray quietly. You pray loud, you pray loud. But for like 60 seconds, just pray for them right now that God would have his way in their life. You may not even know them. Just pray for his blessing, his revelation.